Well, flip over to 1 Peter 3. It's a text that we have read a few times in this series. And um, we're coming to, not to the end of the series, but we're coming to the end of the part that deals specifically with with marriage and marriage relationships. And so I said last week that these two weeks will be the most marriage-centric because the Bible often has a lot to say about marriage because that is the... um, the dominant or the uh, the more the most normal way that male and female conflicts and relationships come into the fore is in the context of marriage, and um, try to continue to point out ways in which these instructions to husbands and wives do apply to men and women in general. Whether you're married now, whether you're married not yet, but uh, looking and looking forward to marriage one day, whether you're a young person at home and not even thinking about marriage yet. Uh, or if you're a single person, um, for whatever reason, um, you find yourself in that there are applications, I hope, that we can take from these instructions because um, ultimately husbands and wives, though they have specific responsibilities and roles and, and uh, relationships with each other, they are at the end of the day uh, male and female created in the image of God and therefore most of the things that we will say about husbands can easily apply to all men, and even a lot of the, you can take application and apply them to women in certain ways, and almost all the things we talk about with biblical womanhood and relationship to husbands can also be applied to all women generally, and also um, can be given um, to all people in, in some form. Um, so we just have, sometimes you have to do a little bit more work on your own to apply the particular message and say, okay, how does that apply to my particular situation? So I encourage you to do that because obviously I'm not going to be able to cover every instance um, in our time together. So I, I commend that to you to really, when we're talking about something that may not seem at first to apply to you, to really think deeply, how would that apply to me? What can I learn from that? And it may be as simple as praying for, you know, if we're talking about something about husbands and maybe you're a single woman and you say, well, I really don't see how that applies to me directly, well, then at very least that you can do is pray for the, the men in our church, the husbands in our church, the husbands of those that you know to be more like uh, the character qualities that are described here. Um, there's a quote I found by Germaine Greer from 1970 who wrote a, a, a work, I don't, it's not really a book, um, some people called it a manifesto called The Female Eunuch, that she, write, that she wrote this. 1970, right? Right kind of in the, the, the height of the women's lib movement. Women are not happy even when they do follow the blueprint for marriage and family. This was her thesis statement, that even if they follow that blueprint, that women are not going to be happy. And in this work, um, that's interesting to read at the beginning of that time, she argued that the nuclear family, you know, husband, wife, and kids, that that Nuclear family was actually an oppressive structure designed to prey on women for men's pleasure. Okay? So the question is, is she right? Is that true? And she envisions in this work a day when men would thank women for moving society beyond the traditional family to new vistas of freedom and openness. Well, we've kind of, we're on new vistas for sure in these days. Are we thankful that this is where we've come? And uh, there may be, actually, we have to be fair, there may be some areas where we are thankful. There may be some areas where there have been improvements, and we can admit that. We can admit that there are opportunities for women and, and equality for women that didn't exist in years past, at the same time while saying 
but along with that have, have come overreaches and have come things that are making our society more and more sort of ridiculous as days go on, um, as we move from one issue to the next with regarding sexuality and gender roles and, and um, identities. But whether or not anyone thinks she was right, Greer was right in writing this, we've inherited her suspicion of men, societally, and women playing different roles in the home. Uh, culture hasn't yet completely jettisoned the institution of family as she had hoped. People are still getting married. I think she, I take it from what she was writing and the bits that I read that she was hoping one day we would just discard marriage altogether and just everyone do their own thing. People still want families, strangely enough, right? As if it was almost put in us to want that. But we want now, instead of jettisoning the family, I think the way society has, has taken that feeling was instead of discarding the family, it's let's do family, but let's do it our way, right? Let's, let's not get rid of the institution altogether, but we'll do it any way we want. Whatever combination of genders or roles or even numbers of people uh, prefers, right? Um, I think if things keep going the way they're going, I mean, how long is it before you can have a, um, a, a tri-marriage or something like that or a quad marriage or who knows what will be the case, um, and so the thing is, how should we think about men and women when it comes to the home? And we began looking at that last week, digging into Ephesians 5 and what it has to say. And as we've seen throughout, I hope, this, uh, this series, though Scripture may challenge us, it also holds out a really glorious vision of joy-filled life in the family. And the Bible says, again, we iterate this, reiterate this every week, that men and women are equally created in the image of God, that in Christ they are equal heirs of the kingdom of God. And because of this, as Christians, we can evaluate arguments of feminists like Greer with both appreciation for things that, that they may get right and challenge culture with, as well as critique for overreaches and rejections of biblical, um, uh, of biblical uh, doctrine. She and others in the 60s and 70s were, were right to argue that being a woman is far more dignified, significant, and multifaceted than simply living as you know, the June Cleaver life of living at home as a suburban housewife who only exists to bear children and clean the home. Although that was probably a misunderstanding of what the church was teaching even in the 50s, 40s, and 50s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, I don't think most churches were, at least good biblical churches, weren't teaching that, but that is the assumption that was being made. But yes, let's, let's, let's say that. Yes, women have far more value than simply that. Um, although, and the role, what they fail to recognize, what Greer fails to recognize, is that there's also great dignity and worth and value in being a wife at home or a mother at home. That that is not something to be sneered at or scoffed at. It is a high calling. And as creatures, both men and women, we are called not to self-definition, though. This is the big thing, that our culture wants to be able to define the self any way they choose. Define yourself, define your role, define your, your you know, now define your gender, define everything according to your own self-definition. But biblically, we're not given that, um, we're not given that authority. As creatures made by God, we are not called to self-definition, but to submission to our Creator, who has made us in His image and graciously given us different roles and responsibilities to play as we equally display his glory in our families. So last week we began looking at those roles in the home and we were reminded from Ephesians 5 about what it means for a husband to be a provider and protector, to 
seek to, if, possible, if necessary, lay down his life for his wife and children in love the way Christ has done so for the church. And we thought about how God calls wives to lovingly submit to their husbands as spiritual heads of their families, not because of any inferiority in her, but because she is called and created to reflect how the church submits to Christ, and that ultimately marriage relationships are given to us as a living parable of the relationship of Christ and his church that will carry on into eternity. We thought about singleness in the home for both men and women because the Bible celebrates the value and advantages that occur in singleness, uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Jesus, of course, being the ultimate example of a person who lived an abundant, uh, full life as a single celibate man. Single men, whether they live with relatives or roommates or alone, are still wired to provide for and protect others in fatherly and brotherly ways. And single women are still wired to cultivate life and help others in motherly and sisterly ways, whether that be with roommates, giving hospitality to those who need, evangelism to neighbors, or care of the environment around us. And I hope what we'll see this morning from 1 Peter 3 has to say about manhood and womanhood in marriage specifically, and then turn to um, some practical questions that I thought of uh, on how do husbands and wives manage decision-making or various duties, disciplining of kids, stuff like that. How, how, do we, how do we go about understanding from the principles that we've taken and apply it to a few more real-world situations? And so let me out, say again from the outset that for those who are single, this is going to feel maybe the most marriage-focused of the whole series as we try to get into some, you know, very down-to-earth, nitty-gritty questions of how men and women's roles are expressed within a marriage. But don't tune out, like I said. Try to learn from these principles about the general ways that God made men and women beautifully distinct. Use these teachings as a way to pray for your friends and family who are married, because they need your support and encouragement as well. And then those of you who do desire to be married one day, use this time to help you see what really matters in a spouse and to think about how, my, how God might call you to live one day in a marriage relationship. So with that, let's look at 1 Peter 3 and read the first seven verses. Okay, And again, this section, as we've said every time we've read it, picks up after a general statement on how all of us sh should live in submission to authority, right? Verse 13, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So submission, all of us have a, have a role to play in submission to the authority of the state insofar as it does its job, not when it walks outside of its role, but, but, to, um, but to submit whenever you know, the civil authorities punish evildoers. That's a good thing. How servants are to be sub subject and submissive to their masters with respect not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. That's verse 18. Um, how should they respond in a society that wasn't going to free servants or servitudes or slaves in that area? How ought to they live as, as believers? And then, uh, so he's been talking about how submission to authority works in verses 13 uh, through 25 of chapter 2, and now he says, likewise, chapter 3, likewise, just like those other areas of submission, what do I have to tell you? So he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women, to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And then we're not going to talk about it, but notice the next section says, Finally, all of you, whether men or women, whether slave or free, uh, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain blessings. So you see how he goes on back to talk about the, the general ways in which we are all supposed to live. So he really just zeroes in for a couple paragraphs here, one for talking to wives and one talking to husbands here. And what does Peter say here about men and women in this marriage relationship? Well, he addresses the wives first, and he teaches them that godly submission is powerful, beautiful, and rewarding. That godly submission is actually powerful, beautiful, and rewarding. And again, that's a different, um, a different take on those ideas than the culture would have. Like last week, we said that a wife's submission means something like voluntarily yielding in love to, uh, to the authority of her husband, not because he's always right, because clearly husbands are not going to always be right. But in other words, there is a willing determination to follow and affirm her husband as the head and leader of her family. It doesn't mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean not speaking up or speaking your mind. It doesn't mean that the husband makes every decision, as we will get to later. But it means that ultimately you're allowing and, and helping him uh, to lead and to express his God-given role. Because, in fact, when men don't have these things, it's just the, the case when men, you know, even from secular studies, and, of course, they look at these things and say, wonder why that is. But when men don't have work, whenever they don't have leadership responsibilities at all, men tend to be depressed. They be, tend to be more insular. They tend to be more lon lonely and loners, even whether they're married or not or have families or not. And their rates of suicide are higher. Their rates of clinical depression are higher. All of these things happen. And one of the common factors is a lack of leadership, a lack of goals, a lack of uh, any of those types of things, and also a lack of productive work to be done. Um, because it's like God has wired us in a specific way. And so uh, wives helping their husbands to to be who they were created to be is actually better for them in the long run because it's better to have a productive, <clears throat> it's better to be, have a productive, providing, uh, um, leading, you know, right leading, not overbearing, but right leading husband. If you're married to a man, to have that type of a husband than to have a passive, weak, um, you know, completely. Uh, inert husband who is lazy and doesn't do anything and doesn't do leading and forces you to make all the decisions. So it's actually better for wives to have a biblical husband. Um, and so submission is most fundamentally a gift that wives offer rather than a duty that a husband demands. Right? Husbands don't demand this from their wives because notice he doesn't, doesn't say, likewise, husbands, make sure your wives are submissive in all ways. Make sure that that's not what he does. He addresses wives as if, under Christ, they are their own individual uh, persons. 
and have thoughts of their own. So actually, the Bible, strangely, is very pro-women. I try to point this out because our culture has this completely wrong. But in ancient texts like this, you don't see instructions to wives. You see instructions about to husbands how to deal with their wives. But here, he's, uh, the apostle uh, Peter is treating wives with respect to say, let me tell you what your individual role is. And it's almost as if he's saying, husbands, take a time out. I'm going to talk to the ladies for a little bit because they have specific roles and responsibilities for themselves. And it's not your job to enforce those as a husband, but let me tell you what wives' responsibilities are going to be. Okay, so wives do this. Wives do this as a gift to them, but it's ultimately even a gift to yourself to have a productive, loving, um, leading husband. Back in chapter 2, we mentioned that Peter is calling all believers as a royal priesthood to live amongst the Gentiles, uh, because eventually that's what gets called everybody who doesn't believe in Christ, with honorable conduct, right? To not, we, you don't steal, and, and you don't just not steal from other believers, you don't steal from anybody, you don't lie, and those types of things. And what he's saying in that chapter, chapter 2, is that non-Christians are going to inevitably see your lives, and your life is either going to commend the gospel that you now believe, or it's going to make it seem less plausible to the watching world, whether that world is your people at work, people in the world, in the marketplace, or even your husband or wife at home. How do believers make the gospel attractive? Well, one of the main ways that people, that Christians do this is how do they live quiet and godly lives in the midst of a pagan culture? Well, one of the main ways is by submitting to the, right, to, to the authorities that God has put in place in our lives. In our relationships, whether it's citizens submitting to the government, servants submitting to their masters, or here wives submitting to husbands, we model what it looks like to be people who delight in God's given authority. And in fact, what's in view here are wives making the gospel compelling, especially to their husbands, especially if they're non-believers, who haven't obeyed the gospel word. I think that's what Paul's getting there. What, what, what word haven't they obeyed? The word to submit to the gospel, to Jesus Christ as Lord. So what does that look like in marriage? Whether your husband is a believer or not, uh, Peter really makes three really clear observations. First, it involves respectful and pure conduct. Um, that's really what he's getting at in verse 2, respectful and pure conduct. Um, in verse 1, Peter even says that this conduct can win a husband to the Lord. And so by the way that wives submit, God often can use your behavior to convince husbands that the gospel is true or to reaffirm that the gospel is true if they're already believers. So what Peter's doing is giving us a picture of a wife who exhibits glad servant-heartedness, not some sort of grumbling, begrudging stubbornness, who affirms and respects whatever is good about her husband's leadership, who helps him to flourish even when it's hard and difficult, who's not a doormat, but who has her own ideas and opinions, but uses them to help her husband grow rather than to undermine and challenge his authority. She may disagree with him sometimes and even confront him if he's in sin, but she's a joy to actually lead as a husband because he needs her. She shows that she's willing to trust him even when it's difficult, and she doesn't, uh, she doesn't go back. You know, this is one of the hardest things in marriage is, you know, we all, and husbands and wives both do this equally, so don't, I'm talking about wives here, but husbands do this too. It's so easy to have this storehouse of ammunition that you keep in your back pocket of things your husband or wife did, you know, 20 years ago, and then say, you know, when he makes you mad or says that thing that bothers you, to say, I'm going to pull one of those out and throw it at him today, right? It's easy to do as husbands and wives, 
But that's not the type of relationship that is being displayed here. So respectful and pure conduct, helping, again, deferring to the other. And we're going to see that's the way it works in reverse. Husbands deferring to wives. So it's amazing, isn't it, that wives are supposed to defer and think about their husbands first, in a sense. And then husbands, if they're loving their lives like Christ loves the church, are to defer and think of their wives first. And so each other are thinking about the other person's needs and thinking less about their own. And this is the way servant leadership and mutual submission works in the context of a marriage. So the second thing, the first is respectful and pure conduct. The second thing is that this attitude of submission is not primarily seen in a woman's external style, but in what he describes in verse 4 as imperishable beauty and a gentle and quiet spirit. Now let me tell you what Peter's not forbidding. Peter's not forbidding jewelry. He's not forbidding certain hairstyles. So ladies, you can... You can relax this morning. It's okay. You didn't sin by wearing specific jewelry or having a specific hairstyle. But what he's saying is, especially in their culture, in that culture, the way that you showed your allegiance, the way you showed uh, your, your, um, your value in society, especially as a wife, was to wear certain jewelry, to have certain hairstyles that showed allegiance to certain things, to show off in the marketplace this was the way that their culture was. I'm glad things have, have changed so much and that uh, there's not a pressure on women to show off in the marketplace, right? Glad that has all gone away. The point, though, that Peter is making is that don't rely on your appearance to make yourself attractive to your husbands, that that's not the main priority, that physical beauty is superficial and it is fleeting, right? We change, um, you know, my dad said to my mom not too long ago, said, Why did we, where did we get that weird-looking picture of that guy in, uh, over there? And she said, honey, that's a mirror. <laughs> so things change. You don't look the same that you did when you first got married. Uh, men and women both, right? The wrinkles come. Things uh, sag when they didn't used to. And I'm not going to go further, um, but just things change, right? And physical beauty changes, and that type of attraction ebbs and flows in any marriage. And it tends, when we focus on it, it tends to call attention to yourself. And I think that's particularly a problem, even in our state, it's particularly a problem among uh, our, our friends and neighbors who belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This need to keep up physical appearances, which is why Utah has rates of plastic surgery that rival places like Hollywood. Well, why is that? Because there's this need to perform. There's this need to have external beauty that fits in with a certain image of what outside looks perfect. But that is actually the opposite of what Peter is going here. Peter is saying physical beauty tends to call attention to itself. And again, remember, in all of this, it's always about thinking about the other, not calling attention to yourself. And so Peter is saying that spiritual beauty and spiritual character lasts and actually grows over time, that while physical beauty tends to go the opposite way, right? Physical beauty tends to go the opposite way, right? We get older, and, and, uh, and you know, we get hair in weird places, and, and our teeth fall out, and, you know, all that stuff. So our physical beauty tends to deteriorate. It's kind of the principle of entropy, right? That things fall apart just generally in the world. Spiritual beauty and, and character, though, actually grows more beautiful, more rich, more lovely over time, right? Which is why, you know, you can talk to a couple who has been married for 50 years or 60 years, and 
they can talk about, you know, you talk, you've, and you've heard these people talk about how they find their wives more attractive, you know, 50 years into marriage than they did at the beginning. Is that because on a, if we had a worldly scale of beauty, of what a supermodel will look like, that she looks more like the supermodel at 70 than she did at 20? No, it's that he's gotten to know her. He has gotten to see the beauty of her character. They, they have lived life together. And so he looks at her through married colored glasses, right? And that is actually a beautiful thing for spiritual beauty and character to become what leads. It doesn't mean that there's no place for physical beauty and attraction. So it doesn't mean that we all just, you know, walk around um, like the scary people I see at Walmart at 3 in the morning. But, but it means that, that what we do have is we begin, to, we begin to have a richer and deeper relationship with one another. And that type of beauty tends to flow outward and ends up beautifying those around us. Peter says when a woman values this kind of beauty, that she's like a daughter of Sarah. She uses Sarah as this example. That she has that beauty of character that makes her wonderfully compelling to her husband. So don't misunderstand that this imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit doesn't mean that being introverted is some superior form of godliness. This isn't a matter of how much you talk or, uh, or of what type of clothes that you wear. It's just saying, don't make that the main thing about you. It's more about uh, where your heart rests. And what he's talking about is women who gladly rest content in following their husband's leadership rather than... Um, taking the reins or showing off to the culture a spirit that is very precious, we're told by Peter, in God's sight. That's number two. Number three is that Peter points out that this submissive posture helps a woman actually trust and do good and not fear. Trust and do good and not fear. Very interesting. If you, and you are her children, he says at the end of verse six. You are examples of Sarah's you know, submissive to, and boy, you know, she, they brings up Sarah, by the way, but did, did Sarah do this perfectly every day of her life? Now go read the story of Sarah. Sarah messes up plenty, just like you're going to. So it's not picking Sarah up as this like paragon of, but she's an example. She's an overall, her life is an example of godly submissive uh, womanhood. So he says, and if you, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, why is, why, 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 would, why would Peter mention fear here? Well, because he knows that having this kind of spirit toward a person you know to be a sinner, especially if your husband isn't a believer, submitting yourself to him and committing yourself to following his leadership can be a frightening thing. Because husbands as well are not always good leaders. Or I might even say husbands especially are not always good leaders. And yet, what, and yet that's what God is asking and calling women to do. And it requires her to put her faith ultimately not in her husband, but to put her faith in God who has told her and called her to trust and rest in her husband's leadership. Which is, by the way, men, why it is so important that you do not take your leadership role lightly, that you do not treat your wives disparagingly, that you treasure and honor them and seek the best for them because she is taking the risk as the weaker vessel, and I think that means you know, physically in, in those different ways, not spiritually, surely, but, but physically just that way, that they are submitting to the leadership of, of a human being that generally are, is going to be stronger uh, than they are, and 
and in society, especially at the time when Paul was speaking, had the authority of, of income and have the authority of jobs and, and standing to, to, you know, if, if they were citizens of the Roman Empire, to vote, and those types of things, that only recently women have gotten the, the equality to do. And so there was a lot of risk of simply saying, I'm going to submit to this man, right? Uh, and so don't take that for granted. Don't make her feel um, as though she made a mistake. Lead well, because it requires her ultimately to put her faith in God, her final provider, her final and ultimate protector, her ultimate authority. So submitting to her husband is supposed to be a vehicle that fuels the faith of wives, because it causes her to rely on God every day. So no, wives should not keep submitting if their husbands become abusive because they have, just like a government that becomes abusive, a husband that becomes abusive, has forfeited their right to lead. But in that case, she seeks to love him by getting other authorities involved to protect herself, to prevent him from the consequences of his own future sin. But normally, submission, even to an imperfect man, is meant to yield not fear, but restful trust in God. To say, I'm trusting you even when my husband makes some weird decisions that I don't understand and I don't agree with, they're not sinful, and so I'm gonna, I, want, I want to willingly submit to him because I'm trusting you, not ultimately. I'm not even ultimately trusting him. So submission isn't necessarily about certain behaviors primarily that wives do every day. Most days, couples will simply be living life they will seek to honor the Lord. They won't, you won't face major decisions every day of your life. You won't have major disagreements every day of your life. But you will sharpen one another as equals and as companions because submission is more, less about behavior on the day-to-day and more about an ongoing posture or pattern of trustful respect. It flavors the whole marriage relationship. It's all of life. And I hope when you see in all of this is that submission in marriage isn't designed to be a burden. It's designed to be a posture or a way of life that brings beauty and ultimately strength, and that wives who embrace that calling are not sacrificing their ability to influence others or make positive contributions to their family, but rather it is through submission, biblical submission, not worldly submission, but biblical submission, that by God's grace she will powerfully produce growth, godliness, and fruit in her husband and in her children. Okay, so that's, uh, that's to women. And then in verse 7, we move to the men. And here Peter instructs husbands that godly leadership is considerate and selfless. Godly leadership is considerate and selfless. So first Peter says that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? Is that some sort of patronizing comment? Well, you just have to put up with your wives and be understanding. Is that what Peter's getting at? No, that's not what he's... That's, that's how I read one uh, secular writer read this verse, saying, oh, how patronizing. to said, oh, you're going to have to put up with your wives and be understanding because they're, they're so dumb or something. That's what he read this verse as being. And I was like, well, you just miss it altogether. What he's saying is live with your lives. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Do life with her. Be understanding that, one, she's different than you. She has different needs and different desires and, and different fears and different, um, different likes and dislikes. And so uh, Paul or Peter here is calling husbands to love their wives by nourishing them physically and spiritually, as we looked at in Ephesians 5 last Sunday. And Peter spells out 
that, that love involves not just caring for your wife, but actually getting to know her, seeking to understand her deep down, not just the surface, not just, you know, get past where you were when you were dating, right? Because you don't ever learn. This is why, by the way, Tim Keller makes this point really great, great in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, that, you know, you know, people say, why do I need a piece of paper to tell me that I love somebody? It's like, no, you actually do need a piece of paper to tell you that you love somebody. Because before you have that piece of paper, people can leave. You can, there's no consequences to breaking up and to leaving. And so what do you do? You're always on edge. You're, you're never getting to know that real person because the female, especially in years past, who maybe depended on income or something, would have said, you know what, uh, I, I better not say that or I might get broken up with. I might get kicked out of the, the home or the apartment. And men, too, who... who have uh, their, their dating partner might say, you know what, I better not say that. I better not be vulnerable in that way because she might leave me. But when you have a piece of paper that legally binds you together, only then, when you have something external holding the relationship together, can you really get to know each other? And can you really say that he's not just saying that to keep us together because we're kept together by this covenant, this, this, this bond of marriage? So what Tim Keller says, in fact, you don't really get to know your partner, until you're married to them, until they're your spouse. Only then do you have the deepest and most intimate relationship. And so marriage is a union of not just two separate people, but two people who are different in their genders and in their relationships and roles. And so they need to work to know each other. True union requires knowledge. A husband should spend time listening to his wife, contemplating what makes her tick? Why did she do that or say that? Why, what did I say today that made her so mad? Instead of just getting defensive and immediately rushing to, to, to defend yourself, thinking, why did that upset her? And it may be not that. It may have been something else. Again, remember, women's brains are the ball of wire. Men's brains are in a bunch of boxes. Everything's separate. Women's brains are more like balls of wire. Every wire touches every other wire. So you sometimes have to do a little work, men, to figure out what you did or didn't do. But are you even trying? Are you trying to understand? And by the way, right when she's mad at you, probably not the best time to try to force her to tell you why. But you may want to wait a little bit. But husbands, do you really know what your wife's real desires, deep down desires are? Do you know what her fears are? And are you doing your job as protector to make sure that you're as best to your ability that you are protecting her from those things that fear her? You know, I think um, Mark Gunger says that women have... Have a, uh, have a gland that men don't have, and it's the fear gland, and it's somewhere here, and it's generally motivated by stability. And so are you making sure that you've got your retirement set up, that you have you know, your term life insurance, you know, going Dave Ramsey on you all, right? Why is that stuff important? Because it shows, again, in leadership, that you're making sure if something happens to me, you're taken care of. That's part of leadership. It's down to practical things like that. Do you know what makes your wife frustrated and what the things you do that most often set her off in those ways? And are you actively trying to avoid doing those things, right? What makes your wife feel the most loved and cared for at the end of her hard day, not selfishly just at the end of your hard day? What are her struggles and how can you comfort her or she is weak, right? These are the types of questions that husbands should be consistently asking themselves, and notice that Peter's command to you as a husband isn't that you lead your wife 
that's assumed that you're going to be a leader in your family. He's calling you, in leading your wife, get to know her. Because that's where you need help. You don't need help leading. The assumption is most men are going are to try that. Wives are being called to let their husbands lead, to submit to their husband's leadership. Husbands, it's assumed that they're going to try to lead. If you're not, you should, though. But it's in your leadership, are you getting to know your wife? If you don't gently and humbly seek to understand her, your leadership will not conform to the servant-hearted leadership modeled by Christ, and you will make it more difficult for your wife to lovingly submit to that leadership. Now, second, Peter says that husbands should show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your, your prayers may not be hindered. And there's that phrase that, you know, boy, culture doesn't like that phrase, the weaker vessel, right? What does Peter mean by that? Again, he's not saying women are morally or spiritually inferior. We know that's not the case. In fact, in a lot of ways, women often tend to be morally and spiritually superior to men. Most murders are committed by men. Most sexual uh, abuse and, and acts of or, you know, horrific stuff are, are perpetrated by men. Uh, if it wasn't for women, the church probably wouldn't exist because often in the history of the church, you look, it was a lot of women who were bringing their kids to church even if husband was, was, was you know, out gallivanting on the weekends. So it's not about moral or spiritual inferiority. Clearly not. Going all the way back to Genesis 1. But I think he may have in mind physical strength, speaking generally and broadly. Not that there aren't some uh, wives who bench press more than their husbands. That's okay. Uh, he's just speaking in general terms here. And he's saying that women's relatively less, lesser degree of muscular strength puts them at more of a risk to be taken advantage of in life and in marriage, statistically speaking. Husbands, therefore, are not to exploit that weakness, but see it as an opportunity to show amazing honor and tenderly treasuring their wives and not using their physical superiority, if they have any, as a bargaining chip or as a leverage against their wives. That's where we begin to move into areas of abuse. Or Peter also may be referring to the wife's role as one who is called to submit. She's putting herself, voluntarily putting herself in a position of weakness within the roles of marriage, right? Relative to her husband. She's committing to respect his leadership. And what Peter is saying is that in both cases, whether we're talking about physical strength or whether we're talking about roles uh, within marriage of submission and leadership, Peter is saying husbands don't take advantage of those things, but honor your wives for, for those things. Don't leverage your leadership role for your own selfish benefit, but rather esteem your wife with respect, admire her, bring care to her, pour yourself out to help her flourish. Treat her, as he says later in the verse, not as inferior because she is not, but she's an heir with you of the grace of life through Jesus Christ our Savior. So husbands, do you recognize and thank your wife for the sacrifices she makes to submit to a loser like you? <laughs> you know, are you, are you making a conscious effort to say thank you? I know I mess things up. I know I get things wrong. Thank you for, for helping me be better. And wives, are you helping? Are you really helping your husbands be better? Or are you constantly pointing out their faults, pointing out their failures and weaknesses? Because most men know them. Okay? So, and Peter warns, men in particular, that if you don't honor your wives and put their needs first, you will hinder your prayers from being answered. Now, i got to be honest. I don't know exactly what that means. But it ain't a good thing. 
Whatever it means that your prayers will be hindered by not doing this, by not living this type of life, if I were you, I would want my prayers not to be hindered. So seek to do this for whatever Peter is, is getting at there. It's not a situation you want to be in. So now let's turn to a few practical questions just with uh, a few minutes that we have left here. I just picked a, a few here that I thought were uh, kind of hot-button issues. This is Hot Takes with Pastor Kenny. Thinking, how do these principles that we've talked about play out on the ground day-to-day? First, how should husbands and wives make decisions? Okay? There's a balance here. There's a dance. Remember the two-to-tango illustration that we talked about? It's a delicate dance that we have going on here when husbands and wives face consequential decisions. Now, on the one hand, as the head of the family, the husbands are to feel the responsibility to set the direction and to lead. He's not to abdicate. He's not to passively stand by hoping his wife will just make the decision for him. But on the other hand, he has to remember that his leadership is to be marked by service and that his wife is a fellow heir with him because of God's promises to us through Jesus. And that she often has different strengths and different aptitudes, might think of things in a different way that might lead to a better decision. And so because of that, a good husband would need to listen and enlist his wife's wisdom and perspective about the issue at hand. Wives shouldn't blindly follow husbands, but use resources to empower him to make the best decision, giving him all the resources that he needs, sharing with him potential consequences. And a husband needs to be humble enough to go, you know, I hadn't thought of that. That's a really good point. And together they should make a decision as each other's most trusted friend and counselor in making decisions. So for husbands to love like Christ, frequently means denying your own personal preferences and desires to seek God's glory and your wife's good. So clearly, men, as we touched on last week, it is likely sin and certainly, I think, stupid to play the headship card on stuff like the restaurants you want to visit, how to spend your free time. Um, Don't play the I'm the leader, you must submit to me card in matters of mere preference because that's, you know, that is not worth, that is not worth using up ammunition uh, in your barrel for. Don't use ammunition on your wife. That was a bad metaphor. Um, But what about in real significant matters, right? When you talk and pray and talk and pray and simply can't come to an agreement. Well, again, Tim Keller is helpful here in his book, Meaning of Marriage. He says, in the vast majority of cases, a stalemate is broken because each is going to try to give the other his or her pleasure. The wife will try to respect the husband's leadership and the husband will in turn try to please his wife. But in those rare cases where no agreement can be found, it is the husband's responsibility to lead graciously and gently, and it is the wife's responsibility to follow humbly and not angrily or dragging her feet. Okay? Now you have to figure out how that works in your marriage, in your family. But to try to implement that in your decision making. Husbands, your wife will sometimes struggle to follow your leadership. Be patient. Recognize you've likely given her reasons every day to be annoyed with you. Figuring out how to take the lead in decision-making while honoring and empowering your wife is much more an art than it is a science. So sit down with coffee with someone who's been married longer than you and try to learn from his example. Wives, your husbands are going to mess up. 
Jesus doesn't, but they do, and I'm sorry, you didn't marry Jesus. But that's also why husbands make terrible saviors. So look to Jesus and seek to be quick to forgive. And help your husband see gently why the ship sank. He doesn't live in your world every day, so help him, enlighten him. Review, forgive, try to learn, and then move on. And don't hold his failures against him. One danger I find, especially in young men, is not overbearing behavior, but lazy passivity. So men don't pursue passivity for the sake of peace. Too often you trade temporary peace for lasting division. And that's exactly what you're doing when you cave on what you think is really the best way to avoid a hard discussion with maybe some temporary painful consequences. Some people think that to love means don't ever upset. That's not right either. Because that's actually selfish. That's self-serving. I don't want to have this difficult conversation. It's not seeking her good, but it's seeking your own sense of peace. Biblical love is sometimes to risk the argument. And it says, I love your lasting good more than our temporary peace. Now that's difficult. That's difficult. What is the right thing to do? You're going to have to work that out with fear and trembling. But do it together. And again, if each of you will seek the other's good in a primary way, that will go a long way to avoiding major issues and will go a long way in helping to solve your temporary problems. Number two, how should husbands and wives manage other duties and responsibilities around the house? A good general principle is, and again, this is a general principle. You work this out in your individual families. Duties and responsibilities should be allocated in such a way that it encourages and enhances our biblical masculinity and femininity. So that's a principle. The Bible doesn't lay down any hard and fast rules. There are many things in the daily uh, life of, of a household that the Scripture doesn't categorize as either masculine or feminine. Running an errand, watering the plants, cooking a meal. Those are household duties, but we would be hard-pressed to say that they're uniquely male or female duties. But I would suggest that men, generally, should bear more physically tasking tasks of the home, especially if weaker vessel in 1 Peter 3 is a reference to physical strength. So whether it's moving the heavy furniture or transporting those you know, propane tanks to and from the car, men should instinctively try to bear such abilities, uh, responsibilities. It doesn't mean women can't help. It doesn't mean women can't do these. But men step up. When there's something heavy to be lifted, go, go lift it. Uh, considering a man's responsibility to protect and provide, you know, don't ask your wives to check on that suspicious noise at, at night, right? Do that. I know it's scary. Women, men don't like spiders any more than you do. We just pretend. We go, got him. And then we go, ew. <laughs> when you're not looking. Okay? Think of the charge in Genesis 2 to work and to keep. Um, husbands manage affairs related to provision. If there's no food on the table. The husband should feel a responsibility for that. His leadership doesn't mean he does every activity, nor does it mean that her submission means she does everything while he stands aside. But his leadership looks like taking loving initiative to set the priorities and direction, to show especially male children what it means to lead and, and to, to support a family, and how they can work together with their wives on how they together can honor Christ best as a couple and as a family. Wives may be more detailed-oriented. That's often the case. 
and therefore more responsible at handling the bills. He might be more gifted in the kitchen than she is. It doesn't matter. Either way, they lean into their own gifts while at the same time express their genders distinctively as feminine and motherly or masculine and fatherly in those different ways. So thinking of Titus 2 from last week where we saw a mature woman teaching other women to be busy at home, a woman's disposition will be more oriented toward relationships and the hour-by-hour care of children. But we remember how Proverbs 31, the woman there was concerned to clothe and feed her family and had business dealings and so forth. And so that can be part of this. The important thing is you need to talk about it. You need to discuss these things. And again, husbands, this is your job to lead your family, to lead your wife in having that discussion in your various roles together so that there is mutual understanding and not confusion. Okay? Last question is, what about what do we do with our kids? How does that work? And again, the husband is ultimately responsible before God for the spiritual and physical oversight of the home, including the instruction and discipline of his children. Ephesians 6, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul didn't say, fathers don't provoke your children to anger, but allow your wives to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, It's fundamentally a father's responsibility. And in a fallen world, this is where we do want to say there are single moms, women married to unbelievers, sometimes who have to take up more of these responsibilities than, than, uh, than they should have to. And God is faithful to provide strength. And so God bless single moms who have had to do extra work. But if there's a Christian man in the home, it's your responsibility to see that, that your kids are learning the Bible, that they're coming to church, that, uh, that they're growing in their faith, that you're leading with doing that. And within that ultimate responsibility, the pattern in Scripture is the immediate day-to-day management of children is the domain that falls under the purview of wives normally. Um, again, this can look a little bit different, we, we, uh, and, but, are, but are you, doesn't, it's not about who's doing those things, it's about who's kind of overseeing and making sure that things happen. 1 Timothy 5 says wives are to manage their households. And the Greek word there, manage, is a pretty strong term. It, it implies action and activity, thoughtfulness, planning, uh, those types of things, competence, like we saw in Proverbs 31. Uh, practically, this means that moms will likely spend more time with kids, at least during the day, especially when they're younger, and will discipline their children as appropriate when her husband is not there. And so um, if you spend a lot of your time caring with, for kids, that's an awesome and amazing calling that God has given to you. And the days can often seem repetitive, they can seem exhausting, but God sees your service, he delights to provide you with the grace and strength to do that, take that to him. Fathers, meanwhile, should teach his children to respect their mother and esteem their mother, whether he's there or not. Um, You know, have a near zero tolerance policy to disrespect of moms, because she's not just their mom, she's your wife, whom God calls them to honor and obey. Discipline should be swift And sure, but not mean. It should be always directed toward bringing out, just like church discipline, is to bring the person to repentance. So discipline at home should be that. It should be severe enough that the kid doesn't want to do that thing again, that it feels like a punishment, but not so severe that they begin to question your actual love for them over time. So that's a fine balance. Don't do it, you know, read Ted Tripp's book on shepherding a child's heart to not discipline your children in anger. Allow them to cool off, allow you to cool off, discuss why the punishment is taking place, you know, but there should be, there should be discipline taking place. 
And again, I don't think that you, you decide what that discipline looks like, what type it is. Just it ought, it ought to be that and ought to be unpleasant in some way enough that they understand it as discipline. Okay? So we think about marriage and parenthood. We remember that there are so many believers who desire marriage and children and in the, the Lord's providence hasn't given them those gifts. So no matter your circumstances of life, do not neglect the Bible's college to manage your home in an honorable way. That applies to single people as well as it does to married. <coughs> so Ben, use your homes to provide for and protect others. Be hospitable. Host meals. Have people over. Encourage them. Take care of your living space. Show brotherly care for your roommates and neighbors. Ladies, make your home places where spiritual beauty shines. Use your home to foster spiritual life and other ladies, whomever God puts in your path. Practice the gifts of hospitality. Cultivate sisterly love for roommates and friends and other church members in your community. And take these principles and apply them to your situation, even if you are praying for a spouse or for children and waiting for our compassionate God in his timing to answer. So those are just some ways, but of course there's a myriad of questions that could come up, and my hope is that you'll see how we can apply these principles to actual practical situations and think through them and not give in to just assuming that whatever the culture says, whatever cultural movements say, is, is right, but that we can understand and learn and, uh, and see that the Bible's instructions in this way, really they're not paternalistic, they're not chauvinistic, they're not sexist, but in, actu- in actuality, they are, they are very loving and gracious for both husbands and wives to want the best for each other, to want the best for their families, to want the best for their communities. And we should strive to do that, even if some people in, over the course of, of history have misused those responsibilities. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we have studied the, the context of marriage and family, uh, we pray that it has been helpful and we pray for those who are struggling, maybe with different areas, that they would look hard at themselves and their own particular roles and responsibilities. I pray that we have challenged both husbands and wives this morning, and, and we've challenged uh, even single people. Um, we've challenged young people uh, with what their roles and responsibilities look like and how best uh, to work these things out in the lives of the family. Continue to bless us as we study and how this relates to the, to the church, even next week. And, um, and help us to, to learn more about this so that we might better reflect the way you've created us and, um, and really reject our culture's confusion over these issues, that we have clarity of thought, but that ultimately leads to compassion and a display of the gospel in our lives and in our families and in our churches uh, for the good of those around us who do not know the Lord and ultimately for the glory of your name, for you have called us to live differently. And so help us to see what the Bible says, and to examine our own hearts and our own roles. And would you help us where we struggle, help us where we're weak, and help us together to love one another as the body of Christ and to help each other uh, serve and live better as men and as women uh, created in the image of you, our glorious God. Uh, And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.